I want you to go with me tonight to the Gospel of Luke, if you would please, chapter 15. Would you go there? Luke chapter 15. Lynn tells me she had a great time with the ladies uh, this afternoon, so I agree with Pastor uh, Peter that not, neither he nor I know exactly what was said or done, uh, but uh, they, they had a good time. And so when ladies are happy, we're all happy. And so uh, we'll just let it go at that, all right? And uh, anyway, I'm glad for the fact that... Uh, you got to be together, and Lynn got to be there with the ladies in particular. Luke chapter 15 is going to give us, a, I call it a story. The Bible calls it a parable. It is, someone has called it the prince of all parables. Jesus was the master proclaimer of these Bible stories, these, these parables. What's a parable? A parable is a is an earthly illustration, an earthly event that has a divine heavenly purpose and meaning behind it. Jesus was the master at taking uh, things that had recently occurred and, and would incorporate it in his teaching of his disciples and he would use the events of the day and then, then he would take, he would take a, a parable, an illustration and communicate Bible truth. The story that shows up in Luke 15 is not only a beautiful story. Can I just tell you, it may be the most familiar parable that he ever told. It's the one that, honestly, I think you could go out on the streets and ask somebody, do you know this, this story? And you could give them that title that I'm going to ask you for in a few moments. And they won't know all the details if they don't go to church, if people who don't attend regularly. But I, I've heard news broadcasters and I've heard sportscasters sometimes refer to this story because it's so familiar. It's well known. It's a story that Jesus was the master at giving out in brief terms, incredible truth. The thing that, one of the things that amazes me about Jesus is he used an, eco, an eco, economy of words to communicate a truth. I'm, it takes me 12 minutes to say hello when I get up to a church. It just, I'm not very economical with my chatting and talking. Jesus just could say so much in few words. And the words jump off the page at me in my little finite brain, I mean this. It's like every verse screams at me and tells me, preach on me. Don't preach that next verse, preach me. You say, you have a strange mind. I know, I, I have a, a cartoon-like brain sometimes. It's like every verse jumps out and says, they need to know about this, they need to know about that. Let's get the context, let's get the backdrop, let's get the setting, and then we'll get the parable. Look at verse 1 of Luke 15. It simply says, Then drew near unto him, that's unto Jesus, then drew near unto him all the publicans, those were tax collectors, despised people who were making money for the government, making money for themselves, and, and everybody hated them. Now, of course, we're grateful that things have changed. We love to give money to the government these days. But back in those days, they were despised. Then drew near unto him all 
the publicans and sinners. Now, that, that's a motley crew. That's a group of, of uh, any number of flocks of people, sinners. But in tied with the context, connected with the term publican, it's more than likely people that were assistants and associates with these tax collectors who were arm-twisting, can I just use the word thugs? These were guys that if you failed to pay your taxes, they would come up to you and say, yes, you will, you'll pay. It's like mafia-like people say, you will pay. Would you like to keep your hand? I mean, you know, it's just brutal people. And they came to Jesus. It says, for to hear him. In fact, here I am stopping on the very first verse. Folks, I'm just telling you, the crowds continued to gather and the writing of the language is the idea that they, they continued to grow. They just kept flocking around Jesus. And all the orthodox religious people hated it. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eateth with them. Every time I read that, if I'm by myself, I say, I'm glad you do, Lord, <laughs> because that's my crowd. That's me. I'm a sinner. I'm glad you receive sinners. He's still in the business of receiving people. And then Jesus tells the parable. Now, it's only one parable. It's just got three parts. But we're going to get to the final part. Now, the first part of the parable talks about a shepherd, which is in, in correlation with Jesus being the shepherd of his flock. The second part of uh, the parable is about a woman who loses a silver coin in her home and she lights a lamp and goes looking around. It's connected with the Holy Spirit who turns the light on. But the third part of the story, the emphasis is the often forgotten one in the story because the story is so magnificent you almost forget about the main character and it's the Father, God. Would you notice with me verse 11? It says, and he said, this is Jesus speaking, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them, you already know the story, don't you? And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. In other words, what's going to come to me, my inheritance. And he, the father, divided unto them his living. Whatever he had at that point, he divided to his sons. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous, that means reckless, prodigal living. And that's where we get the term. Wasted his life with all the money that he had. Jesus is telling this story. I would have loved to have heard him tell it. I've heard songs sung about this story. I've watched plays about this story. And Jesus is the one who's the master communicator of it. It's amazing. I could probably have just pointed to anybody in the crowd tonight and say, hey, would you tell this story of the prodigal son? And you probably would have been able to stand up without, I mean, just cold turkey, stand up and tell the story. But let's keep reading it. It says in verse 14, and when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself. That word join means he glued, super glued himself. 
you can see him just like a beggar, just clinging to somebody, to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields <coughs> to feed swine. A Jewish boy was to have nothing to do with hogs, with swine, with pigs. Have nothing to do with them. So when Jesus is telling this story, you can see, you can see people begin to turn and say, that boy, he, how much lower could a kid go? And the Pharisees were going, oh, well, he deserves it, but I can't imagine how low this kid's gone. Keep reading. It says he goes out to feed the swine. Verse 17. And when he came to himself, when he, when he came, I'm sorry, where am I? Verse, verse 16. And he would fain, that means gladly have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my, here he comes, my fathers, have bread enough and to spare. And I, and I perish with hunger. He's sitting there. You get the picture, don't you? He's sitting there saying, we're in a famine out here in the far country. I don't have anything. And I want to eat what the pigs leave behind. I want to eat what they're eating. My daddy's got day laborers. He's got people who come in and work for him on a daily basis just working for a day. And they, they're eating better sandwiches and they're eating better meals than I'm eating. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He's been humbled. Here to me is the apex of this whole story. This to me is almost the most beautiful verse in the whole Bible. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. We read the word in our English Bible, kissed him. And if you're not careful, you may think that just grabs him and just kind of, you know, plants one on the kid's forehead or on the side of the cheek. No. The word kiss there is written in such a language that means it was continual. It was consuming. He was all over that kid. Full forgiveness. Exorbitant. Someone has called it prodigal compassion. Outlandish. Amazing forgiveness. No one's ever been loved as much as you're loved by God. Can I say that again? And you act like you've never thought about it before. You have never been loved by anyone as much as you're loved by God, the Father. No mother can love you as much. No spouse can love you as much. And Jesus is the one telling this story. When he tells a story, there's Pharisees standing around thinking, the old man has lost his mind. What is wrong with this guy? Kissing that boy. Look, oh, he smells like hogs. 
He stinks, probably has no shoes on. His clothes are ripped. He's wasted his life. What is wrong with that father? Jesus is saying, this is how much the father loves those who come to him. And it says in verse 21, and the son said unto him, can you see him saying, whoa, 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 dad, let me talk. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son, but, you know, the boy didn't even get his whole confession out. He had more to say. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let's eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and it's, he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to be merry. I repeat, most everyone in this room could have told that story without me reading it, but it's important that we read it, is it not? To be reminded of the magnificent, incredible love and compassion of God the Father. Jesus tells this story to tell us about the, the fact that there is no one. Now, would you let this truth dawn on you? There is no one too far away from being redeemed. There is no one that's messed up their life so much that they can't be spiritually rescued. No one. There is no one who cannot be forgiven and brought into the family of God. You think of the worst person that you can think of on planet Earth tonight and think about it. The Lord God loves that individual so much so that he gave his one and only son that if that person would call upon the Lord, he would be saved. No one. And you and I don't deserve to be rescued, but we have been, if you know Jesus tonight. It's a magnificent story. Magnificent story of a boy who, like a rebel, comes in and wants his inheritance. And he wants it immediately. And he wants to be independent. And he takes off and he goes to the far country. Now, when I was a little boy, like some of the uh, boys that are in this room tonight, I can remember uh, Sunday school teachers and children's workers telling us, now boys, you better watch out. You get away from God. If you get away from the Bible, you get away from the people of God and the house of God, you'll go to the far country and you'll do bad things. You know what? Those teachers were right. I'm glad they told me that because there are probably times in which I felt this, this pull in my life to try things and to try to get away from God and to get away from him and to, and to involve myself with, with activity that would not be pleasing to him. And you know something? You always go farther than you ever thought you would. You always wind up doing things you didn't think you'd ever do. Many a kid I've known, many a person has gotten away from God and they wound up in prison, dead before they should have died. Messed up and wound up in divorce court and all kinds of crime and all kinds of, of heinous practices of life. Why? Because they got away from the Lord and they went to the far country. Then when you become a teenager, you, you hear guys like me stand up and rant and rave and pound a pulpit and raise a fist and a foot in the air and spit on the first three rows. The only one brave enough is my wife to sit on row three tonight. Uh, she's guarding herself, I'm sure. But I mean, you know, the truth is, I, a, a guy preaching to teenagers would stand up and say, teenagers, young people, you don't watch out. You're going to wind up with the wrong crowd. You're going to go to the far country. You'll try drugs and you'll get involved with selling dope and you'll get involved with messing up your mind. And, and you know what? It's true. I've been around the block long enough and 
for many a year. That's true. There have been people who've messed up their life royally. Why? Because it took, they took one small step away from the Father. They got away from God, his word, his people, and the works of God. And he wound up in a far country. But the truth is his rebellion turns to repentance and he comes back home. And there's this massive reception, as I've already drawn attention to, where the father just embraces him. And it just, it stirs me every time I read it, how much that God loves a person who's repentant. He actually went running down the road. Old men in the Bible never ran. It was undignified. I think I count that as a great thing to do. As an older man, I'm just not going to run ever again. No, I think it's fine to run. But I mean, old men, they didn't run. But this man ran. He went running down the road and he grabbed his boy and he embraced him and kissed him. The boy tried to ask for forgiveness. He got as much out as he could. And all of a sudden, he's got the best robe of the house put on him because he's going to look different now. He's going to have shoes on his feet so he can walk with the Father and he can work for the Father. And he's got that ring on his hand because he's going to represent the Father. I say it again. Everybody in this building probably knows the story of the prodigal son. Everybody does. But would you help me out? Look at verse 11 tonight. Would you please help me out? Uh, Jesus is telling this portion of the parable. It says, and he said unto them, a certain man had, help me out, how many sons? Two sons. I think two people gave me the answer. Uh, A certain man had two sons. I know you're tired, but hang in there. What in the world's going on here? Jesus is telling the story about two boys and two types of sin. We can easily see the sins of the prodigal. And we can spot people, and some of us have experienced it personally, relationally. We've got friends that have gone to the far country that messed up their life. But sometimes we overlook the other brother. Jesus is telling a story about two boys and two types of sins. The extravagant, in-your-face flamboyant in a bad way type of activity and sinful behavior. And then there's this other kid. You see, the backdrop of Jesus telling this story is that there were a bunch of Pharisees. They began to complain and they were saying, this Jesus, this this rabbi, this teacher, he spends time with, with sinners. He even sits down and he eats meals with them. What's wrong with this guy? And Jesus said, okay, boys, let me tell you all a story. There was a father who had two sons. And these Pharisees and others listening to him uh, tell the story. They were were despising and they, they could recognize the ugliness of the sin of the boy who left home. But Jesus is going to start talking about this other boy and they probably thought he was a decent guy because the boy who never left home represented the Pharisees who saw their own spiritual religious dignity. And they were probably standing there thinking, finally, somebody in this story who makes sense. No, because their sin is hidden. It's internal sin. Would you look, please, at verse 25? It says, now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the, can I tell you something? Does it not interest you to think about this when Jesus tells a story? I'm just using my imagination. Nobody went out to the fields to find the older brother. 
to tell him. Your brothers come home. Now, I'm, I'm, re, I'm just reading between the lines here. I think what's not said is te they're telling us they knew how he was going to respond. And it says there in verse 26, and he called one of the servants and he asked, what these things mean? What's going on inside the house? Well, and he said unto him, your brothers come and your father killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. That word entreat means he stood beside him and begged him to come in. And he answering said to his father, lo, that word means look. You talk about rude. Look, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that's a small goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this your son was come, which hath devoured the, thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he, the father, said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. And all that I have is, is, is thine. It was fitting. It was appropriate. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The boy who never left home. He probably had pats on the back from time to time. People saying, well, I'm sure glad you're not breaking your dad's heart. Boy, I'm so glad you turned out better than your other brother. He may have been sitting in a, in a church service, you know what I mean by that, a tabernacle service, a synagogue service, and he looked very good. If they had a choir, he may have been in the choir. He never brought reproach on the family name. He worked. He was out in the fields. Work is a good thing. He was not a recluse. He's got friends. He said, I've never had a party with my friends like this. He, you know, on the surface, this guy looks real good but he represents the Pharisee. Okay, now come up close to your Bible and let me point the finger at me first, okay? All right, I'm pointing the finger at me. There's a little Pharisee in every one of us. Sometimes you can start looking down your nose at people who are living a lifestyle that's pretty wicked in the world in which we live in, and we can't even see our own sinfulness. I told you I'm starting with me, so don't get mad at me. Please come back tomorrow night, would you? There's a little Pharisee in every one of us. This guy, these, these guys were standing around saying, we don't understand this story, this Jesus. And, and now this story talking about a boy taking his money, his inheritance, and wasting his life, <coughs> spending time with the hogs. This is ridiculous. And Jesus said there was this boy at home who was furious about his brother coming back. Well, what, what was so evil about this guy? I mean, he was, he was there at home. He was working for his dad. He, he didn't bring reproach on the family name. What's so bad about him? All right, let's take a look at him very quickly. First of all, friends, he was, he was ungrateful. He was ungrateful for what he had. Did you notice what his dad told him? Son, all that I have is here for you. 
It was necessary that we threw a party inside the house for your brother, and we want you to come in and enjoy the feast and enjoy the laughter and enjoy what we got going in here. But you're, you're standing out here underneath the, uh, the barn or in the barn or out here in the outdoors when you, you're missing out on all the joy that we're enjoying in here, and you're complaining about what you don't have. You could have had anything you wanted. I, I'm here for you. But he was an ungrateful guy. In fact, if you'll notice, please, look at verse 28. It says, and he was angry. You can stop right there. Now, most of us know what the word angry means. It doesn't need further clarification. But the actual word that Jesus used was a word that means explosion. He exploded. He was angry. And he would not go in. There's stubbornness. You see, anger comes in various forms, does it not? It comes with a blowing up. It comes with a climbing up. I'm just not going to talk. Because I'm going to say something I'll be sorry for. I'm just not going to, you know, everybody knows you're still angry. He, he, he was full of self-pity. Nobody recognizes who, who I am and what I'm doing. And the father said, you're missing out on all the joy that we're having inside the house. You're missing out on the feast because you're out here feeling sorry for yourself. You're feeling entitled that you don't deserve to be to let somebody else have a, have a feast and a, and a party in here and have a good time. You need to be in here and enjoying it with your brother, but he said, here, here you stand out here feeling sorry for yourself. He was explosive in his anger. Um, Maybe I just ought to stop right there for a moment. When things, when things don't go your way, if I took this bottle of water, taking the lid off, and I'm not going to, but if I begin to shake it violently, what's going to come out? Every kid in this room knows the answer. Water's going to come out. Why? Because it's inside of it. Well, when things get shook up, inside of you, when things get disturbed in your world, at work, at home, in life, what comes out of you? You see, inside of every one of us is this tendency to say, recognize what I'm going through. You know, the fact is maybe someone's even right now saying, but Morris, I, I've never even, I've never gotten involved with drugs. Good, I would recommend that you never start. You say, I, I, I've, I, I've never been a drunk. I've never been involved with alcohol. I stay away from pornography. This boy went out to hang out with harlots, and, and, and I, I don't hang out with all those people who do those things. I'm not a part of that. Good, I recommend that you never get started, but let me ask you something. How's your, how do you respond when things don't go your way? Right now you're thinking, you keep on this subject matter you're about to find out. No, 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 no trying to be lighthearted a little bit just to help it make it easier for us. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is talking about the sins of two brothers. One is very visible. This one has become very acceptable. We've made heroes on TV programs of people who have tempers and come blaring with their guns and, and angry with their voices, and they're the heroes on TV shows telling people off and, 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 and expressing themselves in, in a fit of rage. Jesus said, my father had two sons. Why was he angry? Because he was ungrateful for what he had. He couldn't see what he had. 
Look, if you would, please, at verse, uh, verse 31. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. You know, when you're angry and you're explosive and you're ungrateful for what you have, you know, listen, you know this, it's going to affect your marriage. It affects your marriage. It's going to affect your home. You'll find yourself <sighs> tolerating your spouse because I know I'm supposed to. And yet that anger is hindering the sweetness that a marriage is supposed to have. It's going to affect the way you raise kids. Did you know there's going to come a day when you can't bully your children? It's going to be a day in which you can't, you're not going to, you're, you're going to wind up, you know, turn, turn, telling them off. And then all of a sudden you, you're going to be doing this right here. They're going to be standing taller than you, you know, and uh, that's not the way to raise a child. You say, you don't know my kids. Okay. But there's never been a kid that's supposed to be raised like that. And that's another sermon for another time. It's going to affect the way you drive. I know. It's going to affect the way you work at work with people who don't seem clearly to understand what you're doing for the company. It's going to, it's going to express itself in so many different ways. You can't, you can't focus on the things that have gone well for you. Look, I was a youth pastor for 20 years. I worked with teenagers. Love teenagers. Love them. But I'm telling you, you could have a great activity, you could have a great time, but there's always going to be two or three kids sitting off to the side saying, I don't want to play this game. You say, well, why not? I just don't like it. It's a dumb game. And I say, well, look at those 75 other kids over there having the time of their life playing that dumb game. Why don't you come join them? You know, you see this at camps. Some of you have seen it. And just, well, those people are dumb too. I just don't want to play those games. Well, what are you going to do? I'm just going to sit here and play with some ants, you know. Where did those kids learn how to complain? I'm afraid they learned at home. It's inherited in all of us in our nature to when things don't go our way, we get upset and we get angry and we complain. Have you ever, have you ever, lost some uh, capability within you where you, 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 you couldn't see for a while? Maybe, maybe this would be more appropriate. When you couldn't walk, maybe you were in so much pain you couldn't walk. Have you ever had times in which you, you thought, I'm not going to be able to walk? I had a moment like that. I had ser several days of thoughts of that. I had blood clots in my legs, and I wondered, am I ever going to walk again? Can I tell you when... When I got healed and, and surgery took care of them, I was able to walk down the street slow to start with. But when I started walking down the street, I'm going to tell you something, I just started weeping. I used to run all the time, and now I'm just taking steps of, as walking. And down the street, I found myself saying, praise you, Lord. Praise you. Thank you for letting me walk. I figured neighbors were looking out the window saying, we knew that guy was crazy. Yeah, he's down there with his hands up in the air. I didn't care because the truth is I didn't think I was going to walk. I wondered. we got a lot to be thankful for. Take a look at your children. Take a look at your grandkids. Take a look at your spouse. Take a look at your church. Take a look at your life. Take a look at your wallet. Take a look at your checking account. Take a look at your vehicle and find yourself saying, I've got a lot to be grateful for. 
Maybe Morris is the only one who needs this tonight, but I want to tell you something. The boy who never left home had a sin problem that in the eyes and in the nostrils of Almighty God the Father is just as much a full of stink and stench and wickedness as the sins of the boy who left and went to the far country. He was ungrateful. Let me give you something else. Would you go back and notice something else? He was not only unthankful, he was unforgiving. Look at verse 30. It says here, but as soon as this thy son was come, which, by the way, Dad, don't forget, he devoured your living with harlots. Have you ever thought about this? How does the older brother know what the prodigal son did, how he wasted money on harlots? A lot of ink has been spilled in books on this. I, I, the, only get, the only way you can figure it is he snuck down the c- country roads and into the far country to see what his brother was doing. That's probably unlikely, but it could have been so. Or he was thinking, I know what I would do if I was in the far country with that kind of money. And or maybe he's just trying to make his brother look worse than what he really was, but though this is probably true. He said, as soon as your son was come, which hath devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. Did you see what he called the boy inside the house having a feast? Your son, as soon as your son came. And look what daddy said. Look at verse 32. It was meat, that is, it was appropriate, that we should make merry and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. He was saying, son, that's not just my son in there that we're celebrating, that's your brother. And in that whole context, what we're seeing here is the older brother had committed the sin of an unforgiving, bitter spirit. He not only was ungrateful for what he had, he was unforgiving. He could not forgive his younger brother. Didn't want to. He probably thought, one of these days, my brother's going to come home. He better not. This all belongs to me. I don't want him around anymore. Think about this. This boy is in constant presence of the ultimate forgiving one, the father who went running down the road and greeted his prodigal boy and and forgave him. This boy that stayed home, he lives near that man. And yet he knows nothing about how to forgive. I repeat, you want to destroy a healthy home? You want to ruin a sweet church? You want to hurt uh, relationships wherever they may be, school, work, uh, wherever it may be? Be an unforgiving person. Many a family has been destroyed because of unforgiveness. Listen, More churches have been destroyed and split apart because of bitterness than has been split because of false teaching or because of immorality in its leaders. People getting mad and unforgiving of each other. I don't know of any problems here. Maybe this is more preventative than an issue of dealing with something that is a common occurrence right now. But in your own heart, is there somebody that you can't talk to? I'm not talking about it, church. I'm talking about in life. Is there somebody, are you an unforgiving individual? You say, but Mr. Preacher, you don't know what they did to me. 
Of course I don't. But I know what it's doing to you. It's a cancer. It's worse than any cancer anybody is suffering physically with. It's a cancer that will eat you up on the inside because the writer of Hebrews says, you better look diligently. In other words, you better get serious about this matter lest any root of bitterness springing up will trouble you and many others will be defiled. Is there somebody who, when their name comes up, your nostrils flare, and if you look real carefully, you can see smoke coming out of people's ears, you know. Is there somebody that you will not forgive? Hey, you, you know the name Jonah, don't you? Did you know Jonah was God's man? He was a prophet. I did an in-depth study on that man Jonah several months ago, and I'm telling you something, Jonah went running to the opposite direction. Boys and girls, you know this story. He runs off in a boat going to Tarshish, trying to get away from Nineveh. Why? Because he did not want the Ninevites to ask for forgiveness. He took off in the opposite direction, got thrown overboard after the storm that God sent. He was swallowed by a giant fish. You know the story. And finally, when he came out of that giant fish, he said, okay, I'll go. But he didn't preach a real hefty sermon. preached an eight-word sermon, according to the Scriptures. In 40 days, Nineveh will be judged if you don't, you know, repent. I'm getting the words messed up. But he, was, he said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be judged. 40, he just walked all, it was a three-day journey inside that city. And the whole city, the whole city, there were, there were 500,000 children. Now, clearly, over a million people, two, one to two million people lived in Nineveh and they all repented and made things right with God. You know what Jonah did? <laughs> he got so mad. Here comes that anger again. He went outside. He builds himself a little uh, uh, lean-to. He sits underneath it. And when, when the leafy plant was eaten up by a worm, he's angry. And what did he say? He said, I knew. I knew you'd forgive these people. You know, it's interesting to me. Jonah was saying, I knew you are a merciful God and I knew that you would show mercy to them. I just want you to show mercy to me. I just want you to show mercy to people I like, not to people who I think don't deserve it. Okay. That can creep up in any one of us if it can happen to a prophet named Jonah who God used and happened to me and you. Occasionally I get asked, Morris, have you ever seen, have you ever seen any real movements of revival? And I will tell you the times that I've seen real movements of revival have always included times when people made things right with other people and said, I'm sorry. I've been saying things about you. I ask your forgiveness. Can I tell you another thing? I've seen it more among teenagers than adults. What does that tell you? Teenagers often will have a more tender heart than a grown adult. Well, if they'll ask for forgiveness, I'll give it to them. Did you know that Jesus forgave you at the cross before you ever asked? Did you know that Joseph in the Old Testament forgave his brothers who mistreated him, sold him off into slavery? 
He forgave them before they ever came to Egypt and asked for forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is, it's not an emotion. It's obedience. Forgiveness is freeing somebody up from what you think they owe you. This older brother thought, my younger brother needs to come to me. He probably thought that. He needs to ask me to forgive him. He asked dad maybe, but he didn't ask me. You know, this boy was somehow or another unattached to his daddy. And sometimes God's people who've become distant from God the Father may stand in church and sing the songs and carry the Bible, and yet there's an unforgiving nature inside of them. I need to move on. I've said enough. The boy who never left home was ungrateful. Are you, are you explosively ungrateful? He was uh, unforgiving when he should have been forgiving. He should have said, Dad, you're right, let's go. And the saddest thing about the whole story is he remained unbroken. At the end of the story, there's no response from this boy. Jesus tells a story. There's no response that says, Ah, oh, Dad, you're exactly right. Dad, I'm sorry. Let's go see my brother. That doesn't happen. It should have. But he was unforgiving and he was unbroken. Even when confronted with his bad attitudes, he didn't come face to face with it. Why? Because when Jesus told this story, there were a bunch of religious Pharisees. Now, you and I hear the term Pharisee, and we, we, we think of, ooh, bad people, bad people. Not in that day. Pharisees were exalted, and people respected them. And in fact, when they came walking down the street, a typical Jew would give them room to walk. I mean, they were highly admired in all their phony religious lifestyle. And they're standing there listening to this story. You would have thought that somebody in that crowd would have said, Hey, he's talking about us, man. Don't you see it? Jesus, I got it. I got it. You're talking about I, I, my attitude. It just, it's terrible. You're exactly right. I, I can always see the faults of everybody else. I can't see my own. When's the last time, when's the last time you really came to the Lord and said, Lord, I see my heart for, what, for the way you see it? Lord, I'm so sorry. Maybe I'm not a drunk, and that's good. I'm not, I'm not involved with alcohol. I'm not involved with the, with the uh, crimes of this day and age. I'm not a part of all that, that uh, involved with the, 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 the lifestyle, the, the movements that are so uh, a part of today's society. I, I have nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with it. I want to elect people in office that will help shut some of that stuff down. But you know something? I, I got a problem with my anger. I got a problem with my complaining, fault-finding. The word Jesus used at the first was murmuring. The Pharisees were murmurers and complainers. Or are you even willing to say, you know, there's somebody I've not forgiven? You see, the fact is, this boy would never enjoy the feast on the inside he would never enjoy the party on the inside because he refused to be tender-hearted and broken 
on the outside. I had a kid in my youth ministry years ago who was extremely brilliant, very intelligent, uh, and very much away from the Lord. Claimed to be a believer, and I think he was. In fact, I'm certain he was a believer in Christ, but he was so caught up with his intelligence and his, uh, his intellect. You say, well, what do you mean he was intellectual? Well, when he went off to college, he graduated his undergrad degree in four years. You say, well, psh, most everybody does. Yeah, with three majors. History. Uh, let's see. Uh, some area of education and a Bible degree. He went to a Christian college because he was going to go straighten those people out too. He would sit in my office as a teenager and he would fuss and argue about anything that anybody ever preached. He disagreed with anything and everything. He, he, he didn't think that there ought to be any standards of separation. He didn't think there was any, any, anything wrong with, uh, with a lifestyle that he would want to live with and, and, and have with his girlfriend. And he'd get me so, so disturbed, I wanted to pick up my office desk and, I don't know, drop it on his head. As, I, as I'm preaching on anger tonight, it's, it reveals what I'm really all about sometimes. He just, he just aggravate me. He just never seemed to get it. He was unbroken. But I remember the night. I remember the night after a wonderful church, after a wonderful camp service, I watched him from the very back of the room. He was a senior in high school. He began to make his way down the middle aisle. And I was standing at the top of the aisle. He started coming down the aisle and he was so broken with tears streaming down his face that he would make it to about three rows and he'd grab a chair. And he'd just stand and catch his, get his strength and then he'd come again, about three more rows, and he'd catch it, catch himself again. The third time, I had to catch him. He came to me, and he just fell on me. He was about six foot seven. I mean, he was nothing but a skeleton of a kid. I mean, he just long limbs. He just kind of draped himself all over me, and he was just blubbering all over my shoulder and he, and and he, he was just he was out of he was just broken and so I thought well, what do I do with this kid and I saw I was looking around and I saw over in a side room I saw a, a piano bench so I kind of helped carry him over to the piano bench and we got on our knees folks I'm telling you the truth he wept until there was a puddle of tears on that piano bench and I just I was on my knees beside him I put my arm around him I just kept telling him it's okay it's okay. This is good. I didn't interrupt him. He was being broken. When he could finally talk, he said this, I am so full of myself. I have been so full of pride. He said, Brother Morris, help me. I said, I can't be the one to help you. I'm pointing you to the one that can. And he got everything cleared up and right with the Lord that night. I wish I could show you the before and after picture. The next day, I've never seen, just phenomenally humble in his countenance. When he sang, when he listened, when he responded to people, he was a different kid.
And recently I've been going online and finding him as he pastors his church down in the state of Florida near Jacksonville. And I listen to him (laughs) as he humbly stands up and proclaims God's truth. And I think to myself, I remember when God broke him. A certain man had two sons. One, you can easily see his sins. And probably on a Tuesday night, there's probably no one here that's living that life. But I don't know of any of us that are not often guilty of the sins of the boy who never left home. 